from PRX. Studio 360. In today's special hour of American Icons, we'll take a closer look at some of the music, art, and design that have become part of our shared American culture that shape how we think about ourselves and our country. We've got three stories today about a desert, an electric guitar, and a motorcycle. And that was at the time that the men were all talking about the great American novel, the great American play, the great American, oh, it was the great American everything. And I thought they didn't know anything about America. A lot of them had never been across the Hudson. It's like the zeitgeist had vomited up this moment, this thing. But it was also the soundtrack of a country tearing itself apart in the real time. A person can participate in this grand tradition of playing the cowboy rather than riding on his steed. He can ride on his iron horse out into the open interstates of the United States. First, the motorcycle, and not just any old bike, a Harley-Davidson. It's the bike with the huge, shiny metal engine and the distinctive roar, the biker's bike. Since he was 14 years old, independent radio producer Jay Allison has owned and ridden dozens of motorcycles. He's taken a Harley-Davidson fat boy down Arizona's Apache Trail, an electric glide up the Pacific Coast Highway, and a V-rod through Yellowstone. He starts this off now at Bike Week in Laconia, New Hampshire. There's only one minivan parked at the biker bar, and it's mine. I drove the minivan because I brought my wife and baby up to Bike Week for their good company. But it's not really a family event. And these motorcycles are like you hot women. They all have their own souls. This is the legendary biker bar, the Broken Spoke Saloon. By the way, we got PBS radio in the house. I'd have fit in better here arriving on a motorcycle, but I'd be especially welcome on a Harley. Harley Davidson! This is the Broken Spokes Loud Pipes Contest, where a bunch of bikes line up in the backyard of the bar and compete for best exhaust sound. The, the central identifying element of the Harley-Davidson is the sound of its exhaust. The Harley-Davidson is a loud, raucous, vibrating... It's a V-twin. ...lumbering... And then it goes boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom. Massive. Two very big pistons going up and down. Great lengths have been taken to assure that every Harley-Davidson has that same signature potato, 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 potato exhaust. The potato, potato thing is really important. It's a vibration tied so directly to the hearts of riders and potential buyers that in the 1990s, Harley-Davidson responded to competition from Japanese manufacturers who were making Harley knockoffs by trying to trademark the sound. It didn't work, but it gives you an idea how much it matters. Today, even, you know, I've been around motorcycles my entire life. I will hear a Harley-Davidson coming, and still in my brain, it triggers, oh, here comes a really powerful motorcycle. It must be going 100 miles an hour, and then the Harley-Davidson goes by at 20 miles an hour. It has done its job. a solidness and energy and forcefulness that people could respect and that sense of American pride and might. Maybe we're uh, nostalgic and wanting to hold on to that and Harley-Davidson is a good way to do that. 
So the very sound of this motorcycle is connected to America. Power and freedom flow from loud pipes tied to a big shiny engine. These are heavyweight machines. They look solid. Some have bags and chrome and lights galore. Others are stripped down. The hallmark is the V-twin engine in a low-slung frame. And there's very little plastic in these bikes. They look like the industrial power of America in its prime. To many people in America, a motorcycle is a Harley-Davidson. Early in the 20th century, there were over 200 motorcycle manufacturers, and Harley was the only remaining. So in terms of a specifically American icon, well, they're the only game in town. Stephen Alford and Suzanne Ferris wrote the book Motorcycle, and they teach at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. It has had a long history, 100 years of history, of service in the military for America by police defending Americans. A person can can purchase a Harley-Davidson and then participate in this grand tradition of, of playing the cowboy rather than riding on his steed. He can ride on his iron horse out into the open interstates of the United States. And that's not the only American mythology Harley taps into. The image embraces both the patriot and the outlaw. That's an apparent contradiction, but of course our patriotism is rooted in rebelliousness. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. The Hells Angels are as much a part of the Harley image as the Highway Patrol. Harley-Davidson was the logical choice for returning veterans and for Easy Rider-inspired hippies. It is an American icon. It's, it's, about, it's about freedom, it's about friendship, it's about faithfulness. Um, and I think if Jesus came back today, he'd probably ride one, but that's a whole other, that's a, that's a saga for another day. Dave Aiken lives near me. He's a deacon in the Catholic Church and officiates the motorcycle blessing here every spring. He rides a 1988 Electroglide with a stuffed gorilla on the back. He wears a long silver ponytail and embodies the range of Harley's core appeal. An older white guy, former fire chief, now a real estate agent, and a veteran. I mean, there's my leather vest with the, with the patches on it that I have that represent rides I've taken, represent people who have died. Uh, I've been to the to the wall in Washington, I think, four times, and that pride does kind of translate to Harley Davidson. Would you buy another brand at this point? Never. No, no. I'm, I'm I will ride a Harley Davidson as long as I can get my leg over one. So. And I'm, I'll be 68 in a week, so, so far, so good. Harley riders are getting older, it's a fact. And it makes sense because when you're young and fast and light, there are other less expensive motorcycles to fit you. You don't mind crouching forward to grab clip-on handlebars and lean into the corners with a high revving engine screaming between your legs. In fact, that's how you feel. But as you get slower and stiffer and larger, there's a Harley waiting for you. There will be peace in the valley. You can lounge into it, happy enough to watch the world passing by, going in a straight line down those long, straight American roads, not necessarily wanting to hurry so much anymore. The boomer generation, they're, they're turning 65 today. So 
If you look at the sales figures of Harley-Davidson, the average age of Harley-Davidson customers, it's advanced essentially one year per year ever since the 80s. That's Charles Falco. He was co-curator of the renowned motorcycle exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum. His academic credentials are not exactly motorcycle related. I hold the University of Arizona Chair of Condensed Matter Physics. But he has the world's largest library of motorcycle books in English, and he owns 17 bikes. Falco thinks that Harley's status came not just from its own marketing and branding, but from other companies, everyone from American Express to Burberry's, inserting Harley's in their advertising. Their product represents freedom just as Harley-Davidson represents freedom. And so iconic status comes from other people's marketing division. The brand itself has generated such intense loyalty, even aggressive loyalty. And I, I mean, I can't really think of another brand where, which is maybe so often tattooed on the bodies of its owners and enthusiasts. What, what do you think accounts for that? It's a valid observation. I mean, you know, McDonald's would wish that the customers liked McDonald Big Mac so much they would tattoo McDonald's on them. Harley-Davidson owners do do that. Motorcycles appeal to your sense of sight, sound, touch, and smell. And for that reason, people who are really attracted to motorcycles are very much attracted to them. I don't drive a car and I don't ride a truck. I ride all year. Yeah? Yeah. Where do you live? Manchester, New Hampshire. You ride up here in the winter? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I only do one thing. Kip took second place in the Loud Pipes competition at the Broken Spoke Saloon in Laconia. And he is dedicated to his 1978 Harley Sportster, not least because of its country of origin. It's America, man. It's America. It's that simple. It is that simple. I mean, we have a certain belief in our country, and I mean, we, the vets started it, and I'm a vet. And it's just, we're loyal to each other. I don't know about the Hondas or the Kawasaki guys, but we don't leave a man behind, ever. And that's what Holly's all about. Kip travels with all the tools he needs to rebuild his bike. He's customized it in all kinds of ways, including a scabbard for a samurai sword down the fork tubes. It's guys like Kip, the hardcore bikers with mechanical skills who remake their bikes to suit their identities. These are the riders at the magnetic center of the Harley image. The newer bikers that go to a shop and buy a bike, their buying the bike is based on Harley's success in making people identify with the old-school biker. Michael Lichter is a motorcycle photographer from Boulder, Colorado. And there was a tradition of working on these things to keep them on the road, but in the process of doing that, you made it more who you were. And I think Harley has done a great job marketing that to doctors and dentists. Isn't there a side of you that wants to feel that sense of freedom and get out on the open road and let go of all those obligations and commitments and just enjoy what's out there with the wind in your face? I know it's a corporation, but for a lot of us, uh, the brand is a, uh, it's, it's inbred, it's part of our bodies. Charlie St. Clair is the executive director of the Laconia Bike Rally in New Hampshire. He's sitting on his 2000 Harley Heritage Softail, just off the main road at Weir's Beach. When he says his bike is part of his body, he's not kidding. You scratch your motorcycle, it might as well be scratching my arm. You know, it's, it, it brings a little bit of pain. You can get emotional if you really think about it. Now, I did go to a wedding once, a marriage, where a guy married his motorcycle. And this was a dead 
serious marriage. The guy had a minister there. He was legally bound to his motorcycle. He was going to be buried with that thing. Was it a Harley? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... (laughs) Not all motorcycle lovers love Harleys, of course. They may inspire national pride, but they also embody some undesirable American qualities. Overweight, aggressively loud, unsophisticated, consumptive. And the downside of their macho branding is that many riders want no part of it. I have to confess I don't want to be part of an image or a brand or a club. I ride mostly to be alone and not for fellowship or identity. Still, the myth of this American machine can hook me, especially talking to Bill Davidson. He used to be Harley's marketing VP, and now he runs the museum in Milwaukee, where the company was founded. And he's the son of legendary bike designer Willie G. Davidson and the great-grandson of one of the founders, William A. Davidson. I started riding with my dad, Willie G., when I was three years old. And I, I tell you, when I'm here at the museum, I just about every day, I walk by that first serial number one motorcycle in 1903 and say hello to my, my great-granddad and, and uh, thank him. If you're a red-blooded American boy or girl, this creation story has to resonate somewhere. Founded in a shed by a few friends, built from the ground up, and then handed down through the generations, it's the real stuff. These days, I own a Ducati and an old Triumph. I like them for their nimbleness and grace. It's true I don't want to sign up for the whole Harley image, but I'm not immune to the big thumping allure. I love the torquey engine. I like cruising down the highway going boom, 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 boom. And I still think of owning one someday. Well, I hope that some of those thoughts get you to a dealership. You need to have a bike, Jay. This is the winning motorcycle at the Broken Spoke Saloon's Loud Pipes Contest. A straight kick built from scratch by the owner, 74 cubic inch Harley engine, and a shovel frame. As much as I love my wife and baby, I shouldn't have driven the minivan to Laconia. I should have taken one of my bikes. Some of the riders I talked to up in New Hampshire couldn't really find words to express their relationship to their Harleys. In their reticence, I think the message was, if you want to understand any of this, just shut the f*** up and ride. And they're right. Jay Allison produced our story in 2010. In a minute, an artist on the verge of a nervous breakdown finds inspiration in the American Southwest and leaves a mystery. The problem with Georgia O'Keeffe is she often told you what things weren't about in her work, but she seldom told you what things were about. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. In the desert, you can remember your name Cause there ain't no one more to give you no pain Studio 3C.
In our continuing series on American cultural masterworks, we now turn our attention to the painter Georgia O'Keeffe. O'Keeffe always considered herself a Western person. She grew up in Wisconsin on a farm and later taught in Texas. She never quite felt at home in New York City, where she lived with her husband, Alfred Stieglitz, the famous photographer. In her 40s, she discovered her next big subject, the old animal bones that litter the deserts of New Mexico. She continued to paint them for the rest of her career. To understand why those sun-dried bones took such a hold on O'Keeffe and generations of her fans, we'll start with the art curator, Lisa Messenger. In 1929, Georgia O'Keeffe decides that her life has sort of fallen apart. Her marriage to Stieglitz is rocky. He's having affairs. She also felt, I think just personally for her art, that she'd lost her passion for what she was painting. She was kind of having a nervous breakdown. And I guess to bring herself out of it, she decided to accept an invitation to Taos, New Mexico. And that was it. She went up. It turned her whole life around. As soon as I saw it, that was my country. I'd never seen anything like it before, but it fitted to me exactly. That's George O'Keefe speaking in a 1977 documentary. Just different. The sky is different. The stars are different. The wind is different. I shouldn't say too much about this because other people may get interested and I don't want them interested. <laughs> it's hard to look at New Mexico without seeing an O'Keefe painting in every direction. My name is Carol Merrill. I worked with Georgia O'Keeffe for seven years, from 1973 to 1979. And I was her caregiver, cook, nurse, companion, confidant. I would walk with her, talk with her. There, that little building beyond is the O'Keeffe house. I wrote her a letter, and she answered the letter, and. Her letter back to me said, Dear Stranger. <laughs> and um, it was one sentence, and it was, Whenever you can find your way up here, let us know. I'm Wanda Korn, and I'm a historian of American art, and I have a very special interest in the artists of the early 20th century, artists like Georgia O'Keeffe. I remember talking with a little girl when I was 12, and I said, Lena, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, she didn't know. Well, I said, I'm going to have be a painter. O'Keefe made her first trip in 1929 to Taos, and she got interested in property there. She began to go back to the same house, a small adobe house in a dude ranch called Ghost Ranch. And then she bought a hacienda in a little village called Abiquiu. And on the windowsill, there would be all of these little rocks and shells and bones and at some time I commented on how the bones made me think about dead stuff and she said no it that was once alive. O'Keefe liked to walk in the desert and she'd pick up rocks that she enjoyed or she started to notice bleached bones from animals that had been killed and left behind. So she'd pick up these bones and bring them home with her, not knowing quite what she would do with them. So on the second summer, 
she packed up a barrel in which she put some of the skulls that she'd picked up on the desert, and she sent it to herself uh, in Lake George, uh, New York, for the summer. That's where I began, that's where I painted my first skulls, from this barrel of bone. And first I painted a horse's head, and then I got this cow's head. And I had the cow's head painted against the blue. O'Keeffe's painting hangs in the Metropolitan Museum, and it's called Cow's Skull, Red, White, and Blue. It's a large, white, very rugged, chipped-looking cow's skull, smack in the middle of the painting, with its two horns splayed out to the left and to the right. There's a black band down the middle of the painting that I think really is probably the easel, and then in the middle it's blue, like, looks kind of sky-like. And then two red stripes, one on either side of the, of the painting. And that was at the time that the men were all talking about the great American novel, the great American play, the great American... Oh, it was the great American everything. And I thought they didn't know anything about America. A lot of them had never been across the Hudson. So I thought, I'll make my picture a red, white, and blue. <laughs> I'll make it an American painting. When O'Keefe showed the skull paintings for the first time, the audience for them was a New York audience. It was the same audience that she had been drawing for her flower painting for the last 10 years or so. And the critics discuss the flower paintings as if they could only come from a feminine gaze or speaker. And this became a little tiresome to her because she felt as if what she painted was always tied to her sexuality and not at all thought as male art was as something coming from an independent spirit. One critic wrote a very little review, but he just didn't even mention the bone paintings as, as if he couldn't find a vocabulary that would put femaleness and bones uh, together in some inherent way. And somebody called them gruesome trophies in a, in a sort of headline story. And she wrote to one of her friends saying, you know, I'm just simply not doing what these critics say I'm doing. Uh, I'm trying to get a sense of place. I want to get some kind of sense, in other words, to give some kind of westernness to her work. I mean, if you're aware of her bone pictures, then when you see a skull or a bone, you rethink that image and you think of O'Keeffe. We're going down to the vault. My name is Barbara Bueller Lines and I'm the curator at the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. We're going to the lower area of the research center. We have in our uh, materials here at the research center a variety of types of bones that she collected. You gonna pull that one out? Yeah. Okay. This is a deer skull. So they were around the house, and this is, I think, probably a cow's skull. It looks like a cow's skull, maybe a steer. People saw them as symbols of death because traditionally bones are symbols of death. And so they were seen as, you know, in that way when they were first exhibited in New York, her paintings of bones. And um, she, you know, refuted that. The bones do not symbolize death to me. They are shapes that I enjoy. It never occurs to me that they have anything to do with death. They are very lively. The problem with Georgia O'Keeffe is she often told you what things weren't about in her work, but she seldom told you what things were about. So you're left in a quandary for um, 
trying to interpret exactly what her work meant. When people travel now to northern New Mexico, they're often in search of Georgia O'Keeffe landscape. She always worked from nature. She didn't dream these things up. And so you can find many of her sites, and people sometimes do that as sport. They go and find out where did Georgia O'Keeffe stand or where did Georgia O'Keeffe make her mental note of how these hills looked. We are going to do the Georgia O'Keeffe landscape tour, and we travel in a small vehicle and show you folks specifically the different uh, sites where O'Keeffe painted. I mean, I, I started saying last year, Georgia O'Keeffe has been very good to us. Okay, it's kind of hot today, huh? So my name is Karen Butts, and I'm the Tourism and Activities Coordinator here at Ghost Ranch in Abiquiu, New Mexico, and I lead the Georgia O'Keeffe landscape tour. That's the original entrance road. So this is the way O'Keeffe, now you can pretend you're her in her little car, right? And of course, when you look out the window, you see that huge, beautiful wall. So these are the things she saw when she drove in. Anybody who's remotely involved in the tourism industry, we're totally indebted to her. So in any case, I want you to look out the window and you'll see the house. We're going to pass it one more time. You'll notice there's a big old tan garage door. She loved that it was remote. She loved that it was beautiful and quiet and open and natural and undeveloped. That's the same thing that draws a lot of us here. But she's fascinating, isn't she? Yeah. So what, did, what kind of work did she do after she started losing her vision? It's not just, you know, middle-aged or later middle-aged women we get on the tour, but there is certainly a noticeable um, quantity of them that come and attend the tour. They want to try and get a sense, I think, of what drove her or what inspired her. I'm Noreen Perlmutter, and um, I grew up in New York. I was born in the Bronx, and then a year ago, uh, we retired and moved to Santa Fe. I lived the Southwest through her paintings. You look at it and it's almost painted for you, you think, until you try. I tried to paint what I saw. I, I mean, when I came to the North, Southwest, I really expected that the Southwest would look like her paintings, and they don't. Her, her, her landscapes are way better in, in some ways, uh, so it was a shock to sort of see it for the first time. There's a strip of color, you don't see it because it's in shadow now, but there's a strip of pink, red, and yellow that goes all along, all for a very long way that I've put in at the foot of my hill. In, in my 30s, early 30s, that my best friend Fran was coming to New Mexico, to Santa Fe, and she said, um, is there anything you want me to bring back? And I said, uh, can you bring me back a skull? So she comes home, and she had this beautiful white bleached skull, and there it was hanging in my house in Long Island. Um, it, it loomed, it was beautiful. And then we, years later, I retired and I came to Santa Fe, and you know, I got rid of almost everything in my house when we came, except for books and clothes, and, but I brought my skull. How could you not? O'Keefe, she would have seen cow skulls used to mark uh, a dude ranch. A dude ranch might have a, a sign of its name, and over it, it would hang a skull. And as she began to polish them up and bring them to New York as finished paintings, people began to catch on that these were rather beautiful objects. Uh, so although she would hate to have done this to the bone, uh, she in fact uh, was a the beginnings of a new regional decoration. 
what today is called the Santa Fe style. I don't think people think their house is complete unless they have like a cow skull hanging on it. Uh, my name is Chris Lejeski and I'm an interior designer. I have my own firm headquartered in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You know, the, the five essentials of a Santa Fe home is a Navajo rug, a cow skull, you know, a Native American um, pot. Um, everybody has a turquoise necklace and a, a framed George O'Keefe poster. You know, I'll do very sophisticated interiors or a beach house where everything is really stark white and then you put the skull up there and it becomes a really sophisticated piece of, you know, it's a, an accessory, but it's like a little art piece. Today, skulls are an utter cliche in New Mexico. There's been such a commercialization of the skull that it's lost its kind of authenticity. It's almost like she became pop art. You know, everyone used her. And I got very upset when I realized that she wasn't mine. For me, George O'Keefe and the skull are interchangeable. It is the essence of her. It is the rawness. Um, it is everything that she's about. If O'Keefe were with us today, she would be very surprised about what has happened to her vocabulary that she invented for the, for the Southwest. She kind of carved out a special space, regional space, for the Southwest as opposed to the Wild West. As her paintings became better known by the American public, the mesas, the lava hills, the churches, and the bones, all of this became identified, thanks to the popularity of her paintings, as the Southwest's um, special area, all on its own, separate from the, the vast American West. She actually said to me one day that in a hundred years you can't know if anybody will even know who she was or anything about her or even care about her art. But it happens that the things that I have done, the things that I've been doing have been in touch with my time so that people have liked it. But I could have been much better and nobody noticed it. Much better, I'll say, as a painter. I, some people seem to be... Uh, luckier than others. I don't know, maybe it's because I've taken hold of anything that came along that I wanted. When, when I think of O'Keefe, um, I think of it as the enormous courage it took to do what she did. She talks about that her life has been like standing on the edge of a knife. On this knife, I might fall off on either side, but I, I'd walk it again. So what? What if you do fall off? I'd rather be doing something I really wanted to do. I, I hope we keep struggling to try to figure out what she was up to. And I think there are little, little gifts that she left along the way in her words, but mostly in her art. And it's a mystery, and I love the mystery of it. I can never know the whole story, and that's fine. Ann Hepperman and Kara Oler produced our story in 2010. Barbara Buller Lines is now senior curator at the NSU Museum of Art in Fort Lauderdale.
Our ties to the American landscape is the theme of perhaps the most popular American folk song of the past hundred years. This land is your land, and this land is my land. Woody Guthrie's song has been reinterpreted over and over and sung by millions of people, including Bruce Springsteen and Pete Seeger at one of Barack Obama's inaugurations. As I went walking But one of my favorite versions of This Land is Your Land was recorded in 2005 by the late soul singer Sharon Jones. You know, I have to be truthful to you. When I first heard it, I never paid attention to the song because uh, <laughs> it was like a folk song. You know, this land is your little I may as well say, well, that's a white people's song, you know. Jones was born in Augusta, Georgia, when Jim Crow segregation still ruled. And then, as you get older, you know, um, you look at the lyrics and, and the true meaning of what he wrote the song. You know, he's writing about he's a poor person. He was like, everybody don't have land. And I look at myself. I'm 54 years old. I don't have no land. You know, and I'm like, that's what he was, you know, talking about, talking to the poor people. The main thing is he may have been white and I'm black, but, um, you know, he felt the same thing that I'm feeling. You know, like when I'm on stage... I don't, I, I can't concentrate on it. I just feel it, you know? And so as soon as that, da, 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 sometimes I, I do the thing like putting my hand over my heart, you know, like, you know, I'm like the flag, you know, and then I'll come back out, you know. This land is your land. Mm-hmm. This land is my land. This land is your land. And then I'm, from there, I'm just feeling the music, and I'm just feeling the people. I'm looking in their faces, and I'm on a feel thing then. Then that's, that's that feel. That's that soul. That's that—I don't even think of the lyrics. They just flow out. From the Redwood Forest. To me, this song is like, I'm not African, but my ancestors are African, and I am American, and then you can come back and say, we didn't walk over here. We didn't get on ships and bring our family. We was brought over here in chains, you know. And half of us didn't make it, you know, and those that did was the strong ones. And those ones that made it are the ones that, where we are from, our ancestors, you know, the generation after generation, we helped build this land. So this is our land. You know, I am American. Sharon Jones died in 2016. You can listen to our full story about This Land is Your Land at our website, studio360.org. Coming up, another story about an American anthem. The American Anthem, Jimi Hendrix's performance of the Star-Spangled Banner at Woodstock in 1969. That's our next American Icon. Stay with us. Studio 360. 
When you think about the Woodstock Festival, there are two pieces of music out of the three very long days that most readily come to mind. One is an over-the-top satire. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. Which is pretty much the perfect in-your-face late 60s humor. And now it feels like just one little beat in the history of the anti-war movement. And then there's this. Jimi Hendrix's intense, distorted guitar version of the Star-Spangled Banner. David Krasnow wonders why this song still resonates with us. Michael William Doyle was too young to attend Woodstock, but he's been thinking about it ever since. He teaches courses on the 1960s at Ball State University in Indiana. My brother was a uh, DJ for an AM radio station in Winona, Minnesota in 69 and 70. And they signed off their station every night uh, with the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, one night I was in there with some friends and I said to him, you know, it's time to close out. And I said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you play Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner and just see what happens? So he was game for it. This is at uh, midnight, a small town in Minnesota, 1970. And within minutes, the station manager, who was awakened from sleep, called my brother and told him uh, that he uh, was going to face firing over this, that his phone had been ringing off the hook with people who were calling to complain that he had played that version. Probably most of the people that were calling to complain had never heard that song before, Doubtful that they'd ever heard of Jimi Hendrix. But they knew when they heard that song that there had been a a rupture in something that was considered to them to be sacred. It's already like oozing with chaos because the notes are bending, and they're threatening to go somewhere else. He's letting them swell. That's Tara Key. She's the guitarist who leads the band Antietam. It's like already like starting to dive bomb. He's holding the pressure points of the buttons. Everybody gets pushed when they're listening at the sports event, and it actually means something to them. find the blues in it, to pull the blues out of it, and that's one of the things that Jimmy did. Vernon Reed, he's best known for the band Living Color. On on a level, he brought the mortifier to the mix. I think he was just like really so key in making his guitar not sound like a guitar, making it be a conduit for a million other sounds. And I think he really, more than anybody, like kind of brought that right in the front door. And for people that heard it, it was, for some people it was, it was this awesome bit of truth telling, and for other people it was this confrontational critique. 
You know, Jimi Hendrix is a, almost like a representative of everything that the establishment was afraid of. Yeah, absolutely. He was kind of sexually dynamic African-American male playing very, very loud rock and roll guitar. He's the kind of person that I think the, the, main, the mainstream America of that time was afraid that their daughters were going to go home with. You know, Dad, I want you to meet someone. He plays guitar. <laughs> Yikes. This man was in the 101st Airborne, so when you write your nasty letters in... Sorry. Nasty letters? Wow, right. you well, people, when you mention the national anthem and uh, talk about playing it in any unorthodox way, you immediately get a guaranteed percentage of hate mail from people well, listen, who say, how that's dare... That's not unorthodox. Anyone. That's not unorthodox. It isn't unorthodox? No, no. I thought it was beautiful. But then there you go. And it was interesting to see him on the Dick Cavett show. And Dick Cavett was asking him about it. And Jimmy, I think, genuinely was like, what? I mean, his thing was, all oh, I'm an American. I don't play know. That. All I did was play it. I'm American, so I played it. I used to sing it in school. They made me sing it in school, so it's a flashback. You know, I don't know if about it. Was it, you think that was genuine? Because it, it's, it's hard to tell looking at him there. Was he messing with Dick Cavett? Or? I think he was messing, I think a lot in, in, in that interview, he messes with Dick Cavett, but I don't think when he refers to the Star Spangled Banner, his performance of it, um, when he says, well, I, I thought it was beautiful. I don't think he's being disingenuous. He was sincerely in the moment that he was in. I think there was an assumption that young guy coming up, part of this generation, you know, we all think alike. Well, he didn't. Reuben Jackson is a music scholar who's written a lot about Jimi Hendrix. There are instances in which Hendrix said, well, he was, he was in favor of the war because he made some reference in an interview to the, to the domino theory, uh, you know, and that, well, if, if we don't stop the communists, you know, this will happen, this will happen, and this will happen. The domino theory was pretty much what LBJ thought, too. If we don't stop the communists here, where will we stop them? Unlike most of the flower children at Woodstock, Jimmy had already been in the armed forces. He was discharged honorably, although sleeping with his guitar was not considered really good soldiering. He actually played with one of his army buddies, Billy Cox, at Woodstock. Jimmy, at least, did not think his anthem was unpatriotic. Here's Michael Doyle, the historian. He was asked about that uh, shortly after the festival, and uh, this is his cryptic response. Nowadays, we don't play it to take away all the greatness that America is supposed to have. We play it the way the air is in America today. The air is slightly static. It's like the zeitgeist had vomited up this moment, this thing. But it was also the soundtrack of a country tearing itself apart in the real time. The sound of demonstrations and people's neck veins sticking out and people screaming at each other from across the ideological divide. That phrase that they used to bring the war home is exactly what you could say Hendrix was doing in the Star Spangled Banner performance. So was Jimmy just reflecting the times, playing that static in the air? 
On the one hand, he wasn't known for making political statements. On the left, he was actually thought of as kind of a lightweight. A critic once called him a psychedelic Uncle Tom. But on the other hand, in The Star-Spangled Banner, it really sounds like Jimi Hendrix has got something to get off his chest. I remember after Hendrix died, there was a, an old bit in Rolling Stone, and the writer referred to that, the performance of The Star-Spangled Banner, and he said when he got to the phrase, the land of the free, that sustained note was like a scream of black rage. wow, you could certainly have interpreted it that way, but that rage was everywhere. Again, Reuben Jackson. Could you see it as a, a blues, you know, a, a lament, a, a question, a, a searing series of questions? I, I would say yes. I'm not talking in terms of scales, necessarily pentatonic scales or flatted thirds, etc., but I would say it was a blues in the broadest, you know, emotional, poetic, thematic sense. The blues is as conduit for whatever is happening, you know, whether it's, you know, on a more personal level, your baby left you or your blues for or about a country which is going through some, you know, issues, as they say in therapy. America in the 60s definitely had issues. But Michael Doyle takes it much farther back, all the way to the beginning of American history. He compares Jimmy's anthem to a sermon, a kind of diatribe that Puritan ministers used to deliver, something called a Jeremiad. The Jeremiad sermon, uh, based on uh, the prophet Jeremiah, calls people to task for their failings. And this was never really something you wanted to hear. And there's always this vague threat that if they fail to restore the fervor, the commitment uh, to these larger principles they believe is God-given, that catastrophe awaits them. And I feel that uh, you could say that uh, Hendrix's playing of the Star-Spangled Banner is the oral equivalent of a Jeremiah for 1969 in America. You know, when you get to in the rocket's red glare, I mean, he's like setting the rockets off. When Francis Scott Key came up with the words, I mean, he was in a stockade and there was like a mortar attack. And he literally saw this battle. And that's the thing about the Star-Spangled Banner, is that we, we divorce it from the actual event that it describes. And that's the thing. When we sing the national anthem, we tend to forget. It's not about baseball or parades or spacious skies or amber waves of grain either. The song is about war, a forgotten war, but still. This country was born in war, and we've been fighting wars ever since. And Jimi Hendrix's Star-Spangled Banner doesn't let you forget that. I think you can be, quote, patriotic and, and acknowledge the degree of violence that, well, this country was founded, in my opinion, of violence with, you know, the Native Americans, et cetera. And, and I think it's, it's saying, well, this is our song, and America is like a house with many rooms. And some of the rooms have some blood on the wall. These days, most Americans have come to accept or acknowledge the blood on our walls. We don't have the kind of massive protests that marked the 1960s. 
I asked Tara Key, the guitarist from Antietam, to take Jimmy's Star Spangled Banner and make her own version of it for the times that we're living in right now. You can hear in her version that America holds a very different place in the world, not so much the colossal superpower, more vulnerable and struggling to meet the challenges in front of us. I mean, everybody wants to make it work, but it's just like the way is hard to find a unity about now. So I just think in this time you go inside and you find the way to give your best from internally. You have to start from within now to find a way to be a good citizen and to help make it work. Instead of a scream of rage against America, what Tara played sounds a little like an elegy. Melancholy, but loving, and I think a little bit hopeful. David Krasnow produced our story in 2010. And that's it for this installment of American Icons. Thanks very much for listening. Head to studio360.org to hear the rest of our American Icons catalog, dozens of pieces about the great works of art and culture that America has produced. And to make sure you're among the first to hear the new American Icon stories we're making right now, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. R.I. Public Radio International. I could have danced all night. Next time on Studio 360, how the lyricist for classic, joyous musicals like My Fair Lady wasn't always so chipper himself. Alan was so distraught that he chewed his fingernails until they bled. The highs and lows of Alan J. Lerner. Next time on Studio 360. Accustomed to her face.